0: Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. It's going to be a great episode today because our guest is Smitri Mundra. She's the genius who brought us Indian matchmaking and the romantics. She's really paving her way and it's such an awesome conversation, so you're going to enjoy this one. And uh if you're enjoying Brown History and you want to support it, you know, there's so many ways you can support it. You can become a patron, you can subscribe to the newsletter. There's so much cool merch you can check out. Your help really goes a long way, so do to check that out and uh, let's get started. Here we go. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, Usually I go back to the history of the guest and I didn't know that your dad was a movie director in both America and India. Is Mm -hmm. that how you got your interest in movies?
1: Yeah definitely. Um, I you know I think like a lot of Daisy people I grew up watching movies. It was a big part of my life but it was like extra extra for me because my dad was a filmmaker and it was something you know since childhood he had always dreamed of doing but um and he really hustled his way you know into into becoming a filmmaker because he kind of came from came from you know no background you know in film he grew up middle class in Calcutta and you know did the did the you know proper thing and went to you know engineering school and came here you know on a on an engineering scholarship um Mm -hmm. but um but he always wanted to be a filmmaker. So it just consumed him. He was obsessed with it. And, um, he really hustled, you know, to find his way into the business. So I grew up learning a lot about the business, you know, in a sense. Um, but also just watching movies with him, you know, those were that, those are my childhood memories was watching movies with my dad, often movies that were way beyond, you know, my understanding, but, yeah. um, you know, we would watch like, you know, I remember watching, um, Francis Ford Coppola is the conversation, you know, when I was like seven years old, you know, watching, um, uh, uh, Salam Bombay in a movie theater, you know, with my dad before I could, you know, really even understand what that movie was about. And of course, like a lot of, a lot of Hindi films as well. So
0: I heard that your dad was one of the first guys in California to show Bollywood movies in a the movie theater.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was, Um, he was definitely the first in California. I'm not sure about the whole US, but one of the first, I mean, he was definitely a pioneer. But he and my mom um Uh, Ran a single screen movie theater in Culver City here in Los Angeles, um, and they, you know, were exhibitors, the first exhibitor in Southern California of Hindi films. And that really like brought the community together, you know, like every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like the whole community would show up, you know to watch these movies and they sold samosas and concessions. And they had like, then later, you know, in a a couple of years and they, they built like a whole like boutique and a grocery store, like attached Mm. to the theater, you know? Um, So it really became a hub for the community. And there's like friendships now, you know, that are like 40 years deep, you know, of people who met at that movie theater.
0: Wow. It's like a Brown post right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you started working in movies right away. Like your dad was completely supportive of you. You were on sets doing a bunch of odd jobs, I guess, here and there right away.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I had like a brief uh, rebellion, rebellious period where I like did a year stint in advertising, but quickly came back, you know, to films and because that's just what I grew up with. And that's what I always wanted to do. So I started very young. I started working. I started working when I was, like, 12 years old, but that was, like, in retail. I started working in film, uh, like, the day after I graduated high school when I was 16.
0: Wow. You worked in movies like uh, Being John Malkovich, like, great movies from the Coen Brothers. That must have been, like, a crazy experience. Your dad must have been, like, asking you questions every day after oh, yeah, home.
1: Oh, yeah. It was crazy because when I um, – I remember when I first – so, right after high school, I, like, faxed my resume to every film production company in L.A., and I got an internship, Um uh, at Propaganda Films, uh, RIP, doesn't exist anymore, but um, I got an internship there and it, it, they had all these like amazing filmmakers, you know, that worked there and were making movies and music videos, commercials, everything. And I would like, my job was to file all the sim- scripts, you know, that would come in. And uh, I would, of course, like like read them and then file them. And then I I would, you know, I <laughs> would like bring some home and show my dad like all these amazing scripts that I was able to get my wow. hands on. Yeah, it was, it was pretty great.
0: See any strip that like we recognize now
1: oh yeah i mean i just i remember i remember um okay i i mean how I? i'm not gonna get in trouble for saying any of this now but um i one time i had to um because spike jones who i was interning for at the time was uh making being john malkovich so charlie kaufman you know would be in the office a lot and Um, I, you know, I I had to print out and like collate all of his scripts. He had like I don't know. I mean, he was so prolific. He probably had like 10 screenplays, you know, and he asked me, somebody asked me to like print them all out and call, co- you know, collate them and put the little things like an old school, you know? And so I made like a set for myself <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and I still have those scripts. I have like a little script library of all the scripts I stole from that job, uh, copy hard copies of like all of Charlie Kaufman scripts. I have, I have like copies of all of the Coen brothers scripts. Um, you know, that so cool. stuff that's like never, they've, that, that never got produced, stuff that was produced like years later. So.
0: Yeah. Well it's interesting that you're you're reading and working in these uh scripted movies and film, but you you started working documentaries. So I guess this is my question to my real question. So mm-hmm. in 2020, you went to film school, you graduated from film school yeah. and you're done school and you've got this like nice kind of experience under your belt of doing odd jobs, and you've worked in big movie sets and you stole scripts and uh <laughs> you know, the world is now your oyster and you're, you're done school. Do you have a plan or any idea what you want to do?
1: Yeah. So just one point of clarification, I graduated film school in 2009. So thank you for making me feel younger (laughs) than I am. But, um, but I, yeah, I graduated film school in 2009 and, um, I had already like, when I went to, I, you know, like I started working really young in the industry and before I went to film school, I had produced a number of independent films, um, but I I went to film school because I wanted, you know, I, I just, I, I wanted to sort of f- follow my own creative ways as opposed to um, supporting and servicing like other filmmakers and their visions. Um, and so when I graduated, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to start making a film immediately. Like I didn't want to wait, you know, five years, you know, to make a film out of film school. I, I wanted to do, we wanted to make a film immediately and At that time, it was like this weird gulf. It was just a really weird time because it was after the sort of 90s and early 2000s, like independent film boom that got me into film, you know? Um, So that like golden era was gone. It was Mm -hmm. before streaming really took off. So that golden era was yet to come. So, and it was like the peak of the recession, you know, the great recession. Um,
0: So times are rough, times are tough.
1: times were tough and you can imagine like, especially for um, a woman of color, you know, who wanted to direct and write, it was even tougher. Mm-hmm. So there was really no like support, you know, for any, for the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell, particularly from my cultural background, you know, everything was considered too niche, you know, I wasn't really able to get any support, you know, for making a fiction film. Um, so I pivoted to documentary because there's just fewer gatekeepers, there's fewer, fewer barriers to entry um you know if you have access and a great idea you know um you can and you can like turn a camera on you can at least start that process I'm not saying it's that easy but like you know it was just more achievable for me so that's how I got into nonfiction.
0: but um yeah it's less barriers but there's a lot more risk um there's no guarantee Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you're filming real people so you don't know if they'll Um, if they'll participate or or listen to you and um you and the first documentary you do is a suitable girl which takes you to india so you're in a different country so it's a really really big ambitious project so first of all how did that project come to you and what gave you the creative confidence to take on a project like this
1: you know that film um was born out of very like a very deep personal place and honestly like a lot of um conflict internal conflict that I was experiencing in my 20s um around all of the cultural societal pressures I was facing as a you know 20 something you know approaching 30 Indian woman um marriage pressure you know just generally you know just generally seeing all of my peers like go in a different direction get married settle down you know get banking jobs or become doctors and everything. Um, And I just, you know, I always felt very on the outside of all that, you know, and um, uh, and it was compounded by this like mounting pressure to get married. And it wasn't even like a direct pressure. It's like, it's not, I didn't have like super conservative parents, you know, who would disown me if I didn't get married or anything, but it was just the subtle, societal pressure like every wedding someone asking you like you know like when are you getting married when are you getting married like you see your younger you know cousins and all getting married like it was just that was very like that mounting pressure and I had um in 2008 I had gone to India to visit my parents and they um had gone for like two weeks and they introduced me they were like oh there's you go meet my mom you know, was like, go meet this matchmaker. There's this matchmaker, just go meet her, you know. And Zuma. they had made a bio see Monty. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, they they made a bio data for me, which was like I don't even know who that person was <laughs> in that biodata, but <laughs> um, but I went to go meet her and honestly, I when I met her, I was like, I don't know if this lady's gonna find me a husband. Not that she's not great at what she does, but I was like, I just wasn't in that frame of mind at the time but I was like, there's something about this. that's really captivating. And I was like, it was like traumatizing and triggering, but also really captivating. Um, and so, yeah, when I graduated in 2009, I said, this is the film I want to make, you know, like, I want to explore this um, from the inside out. And, and I wanted to externalize it a little bit, you know, from my own experience, I didn't want to make a personal documentary because I just, you know, felt like I wanted to, I actually wanted to understand um, the, the, psychology and the sort of um the sort of like what drives that tradition you know in our culture um and so that's how that's how suitable girl got started
0: and if and my understanding is of documentaries or making documentaries like these is that the story comes after or while filming and you don't really know what you're what you're doing mm-hmm. here so for someone who had really no experience in in film in documentaries where did you get the confidence to just you know agree yeah. to this and <laughs> and um and risk and 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 the and the documentary took years to make so so this is a big part of your life and um one success always leads to another success so you don't really know if this is going to be successful either and it could it's it's what i'm basically saying is that this was like the make it or break it kind of thing in your life i think in your career so yeah how did you decide where did you get the courage from and how did you like decide to do this
1: You know, I, I think the courage came from absolute ignorance, you know, um, (laughs) and naivete. I, I, if I had, if I had known at the start of that process, if I had known in, you know, whatever it was like June, 2010, that I was going to spend seven years of my life, you know, working on that film. And I was going to, you know, like wake up with panic attacks, like, you know, about financing and about story and what I was doing and, you know, like all of that. I would have never started it. I would have never done it. Wow. Um, I just, you know, really naively thought, oh, documentary, that's, I I mean, I've made fiction films. I've worked in film for a long time. Like documentary will be easy, you know? And I literally thought, I mean, if I look back at like my first like pitch deck, you know, for that documentary, it says six months of shooting, 18 months of editing, you know, you know, Sundance premiere, giant sale, bada bing, bada boom, you know, done. Um, it was not that process at all. And that was like a very different, you know, I think, you know, now when I look back, I realize I I can, I can realize like why that process took so long creatively, you know, logistically and everything, but at the time I didn't see it. And that's, you know, so I just jumped in. Um, and then once you're in, you're in, you know, like, uh, I think I just, I learned so much about myself creatively, you know, also just learned so much about all of the things that I had internalized, you know, as a as a young Indian woman, you know, through that process, I, I, I reconnected in such a way, you know, to my motherland, you know, to India, because I lived there, you know, um, I had lived there as a child, but, you know, living there as an adult and working there. Um, and it was uh, honestly like, it was, you know, my 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 dad died a year into that process of making that film. And, um, you know, I the year before he died, he died very suddenly and the year before he died. Uh, I was with him like every day because I was living in India and he was living in India. So I was like, I spent so much more time with him than I had ever had as an adult. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just that process was really transformative for me in so many ways. But I think if I knew what I was in for when I started, I would have never started.
0: Well, you know, uh, the reason why you went to film school is because you wanted to be in under creative control. and. Mm In this documentary, you're both you're both the director and the producer. One is kind of like trying to break barriers, and the other one's trying to keep you on the same direction, trying to move you forward. Was it tough doing both jobs at the same time?
1: You know, I it it, it yes and no. I mean, I actually think um, uh, being able to do both and think with both sides of my brain like that is um, has been really useful for me. Um, uh, uh, you know, even like since then. Um, Because I think like, you know, I'm not one of those filmmakers who, I'm a filmmaker who likes boundaries, you know. Um, I'm a filmmaker who thrives with like knowing, okay, this, you know, I have. Structure? Yeah, like I have some structure, you know, and there's some control to this process. And I don't think that that compromises creativity. I actually think it enhances creativity. Um, you know, it makes you really consider every choice and it makes you, you know, prioritize, you know, what you need and really think about your story as opposed to like an undisciplined approach, you know, um, to filmmaking. Um, so I actually think it really served me. And, and I really I tell this, you know, I talk to a lot of like young emerging filmmakers and I tell them this all the time. That I learned to be a director making a suitable girl, not because my, my title was director, you know, or because I was making all the creative decisions it's because I was also my own bookkeeper I was my own assistant editor I was my own I was doing everything mm-hmm. um and I because I had to do everything I had to every day live with my mistakes every day especially like in post-production because I was I was going through you know we, we just didn't have any money so it was me my directing partner Sarita Karana and our editor Jen Tashara it was just three of us like in that whole process and I I was the AE, you know, I was like going through every frame of footage. I would sit behind Jen, um, our editor in, um, her, her apartment, um, like where we would edit. And I, would I, she sat at the desk with her edit stuff and I sat behind her on the couch and I would have all my hard drives set up and I'd be going through footage. And while she was editing, she'd be like, she would like look, turn around and be like, did you get, She's like, where's the reaction shot for the scene? Or um. like, where's, where are the cutaways for the scene? And I would just like, like every day, it was like this, you know, just I was holding my hand in my hands and being like, I didn't get that I didn't get that moment or I didn't do that. And, and honestly, like, that's how I learned, you know, that that was the best education I could have possibly gotten it was every day having to be confronted with my mistakes. Um and uh and then i never forgot to get a reaction shot you know <laughs> since then
0: <laughs> wow so it, it worked out for you because a suitable girl wins a uh, best new documentary at a prestigious film festival and you got your street cred and you got your recognition and now you're you're like on top of the world how do you decide on your next project um you know
1: i after so a number of things happened during the making of a suitable girl um my dad died suddenly. I became sort of head of household, you know, in my family. I became financially responsible. You're the you know, oldest. From, I'm the only. <laughs> you're the
0: only. Okay. Yeah, so I have no siblings. Your mom out. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I got married. I had my first child. Um, you you know, got married all,
0: right after, right during the documentary making of a super. Right movie.
1: in the middle of it. Yeah, and then a Does year later, I had a baby. Up? She did not. With my Brazilian Irish husband? No. Ooh, no, definitely not. <laughs> um, no, she she introduced me to some very nice people, but I found that guy on my own. Um, but yeah, I, so all of these major life changes happened and all of this new responsibility was on my shoulders. You know, like I, it wasn't, you know, I when I started A Suitable Girl, I was like, I never thought about, you know, I was totally under the protection of my parents. You know, I had a home to come back to. I I only had myself to to take care of, you know, and by the time I finished that film, um, I had a whole ass family. (laughs) Can I say (laughs) that? I'm sorry. Um, You can, you can. Okay. um, And and I had, you know, I had to figure out how to pay a mortgage and, you know, raise a child and, you know, um, figure out my career in that. But honestly, I really think that was the best thing that could have happened to me because one, like those kinds of big life changes, like it just like opened something up in me creatively, you know, and it just made me more focused and driven about the types of stories I wanted to tell, you know, and I was juggling actually. So I was juggling a day job throughout all of that, you know, because obviously like immigrant mindset, I'm like, I have to make sure there's like a check in the mail yeah, every month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had a and in fact, I I I had a day I've had a day job until a month ago when I got laid off from my day job. Um, but, you know, so I always had a day job, but I was like, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to spend whatever it is, six hours a day, you know, like making a living. And then the rest of the time I have to, I have to like, I have to work three times as hard and three times as fast as anybody else um, to build my career in a meaningful way. Um, And it was just like, I don't know, in those five years, in the last five years, since a suitable girl, now almost six years since a suitable girl premiered, it's like been the most thrilling, incredible, creative run you know, I could have ever imagined. Um, and then I think also I've been very lucky because the, the sort of market has met me where I wanted to be, you mm-hmm. know? So not only has like content become global, you know and there's way more appetite for the types of stories that I want to tell. Um, but also like nonfiction has boomed, you know, as a as a sector. Like yeah, so many more documentaries are being made and nonfiction projects are being made. So yeah, it's been it's been really incredible, honestly, these last few years.
0: Also, there's like a wave of South Asians, like a bigger audience of South Asians. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely, groups. yeah.
0: I, when when a documentary wins, when when a documentary like A Suitable Girl uh, gets, you know, critically acclaimed, wins awards, does that mean you get a big paycheck or it just means <laughs> that there's potential of a paycheck in your next project?
1: It doesn't come with a big fat check. Um, it comes with a very nice certificate or a statue sometimes. Um, But, you know, I will say, you know, we kind of, I think we're all conditioned to be like awards don't matter. And it's all about the work and, you know, this is all a, you know, racket and whatnot, but they do matter. You know, I mean, winning that award at Tribeca was the most validating experience of my life until that point, you know, it was because I had worked at that point, that was 2017. I started, yeah, I had worked 20 years in the industry at that point. I started in 1997 when I graduated high school You know, I had hustled and worked and seen other people, my peers rise, you know, in that time frame. Um, I had seen my work rejected, my ideas rejected, my emails ignored, you know, for 20 years at that point. Wow. Um, And then, and then, and I had spent seven years making that one film, you know? Um, And I poured my heart into it. And I remember like right before the premiere, you know, I had a conversation with them. With Sarita, my my co-director, and and I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm so proud of this film. Every frame in that film was considered. Every frame, I take ownership of every frame of that film, you know. And I said, you know what? I was like, if this is this is like, this has been such a fulfilling experience. It's been it was fucking hard, like not gonna lie, it was really really hard. Mm-hmm. But I was like, this has been such a fulfilling experience for me. That if this is my career, that every seven years I make a film that I'm really proud of. And I, I do it slowly. I do it sort of on my own time while I have a day job and while I, you know, put food on the table for my family. But if I, if I can make one film every seven years that I feel this proud of, um, and really like feels like this much of my soul is in, I was like, you know, by the time in my lifetime, I can make six or seven like films I'm really proud of. And I'm like, that's an amazing legacy to leave behind. You know, yeah. that's an amazing body of work. I was like, I'm good with that. You know, that was my plan. And that's, that's still my plan. You know, like if all of this goes away, you know, everything goes away, that that's my plan. I'll like, you know, work at Costco because they have great benefits and I'll, you know, I'll make one film every seven <laughs> years. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, just to see, just like and when we were sitting at that awards thing with zero expectation of winning I didn't even take the day off of work so I was like on my phone I had so my funny. I had my laptop out like still responding to emails like during the award ceremony and then when they they announced you know that award and they announced and we saw like the image you know from our film come up I was just it was like I don't know I don't even know how to describe the experience it was like it was so validating it was so validating for all of that work and not just the work but it was like Validating that, like, a, a story that was important to me that came from my perspective and reflected, you know, just my point of view in the world, you know, mine and my, my collaborators, like, was recognized in that way was just, it was life changing for me, truly.
0: Wow. So what happens when you win the award? Do you get phone calls from big studios? <laughs> you can do whatever you want? The... Uh you can choose any project you want i mean it must feel very overwhelming not overwhelming overwhelming in the sense that now you're free to to spread your wings yeah. and now there's so many choices on the table it must be like what do i do now and and i must uh in some sense have to match the success i had with the last one so there's an yeah. expectation from others and on and of you on you yeah.
1: um well None of those things happened. <laughs> um, no no big check came. In fact, no one even bought our film, you know, um, though it had gotten such great reviews. It was, it won that award. Really? No one, no one bought a suitable girl. We self-distributed it, which ended up being a great thing. You know, we ended up, you know, um, I lost count. I stopped counting after a million streams, but like well over a million people have streamed that movie, you know, just through, self distribution um and uh you know like so you know it all ended up fine but like there was no big check there was no great opportunity that came from that necessarily um uh, well that's not true and i'll tell you exactly what came from that um it was still a hustle okay for after that um but two things happened um, i got an email from an executive at netflix Named Bela Bajaria who had just started uh, at Netflix as the head of unscripted and comedy originals uh, I think in fact check me on that title but she just started at Netflix and she saw the I think she like saw something some announced probably she saw that the film had a suitable girl had won at Tribeca um, and she called me in for a meeting just a general meeting And at that time, Netflix was really like staking a claim, you know, uh, like planting a flag in India. And they were really like, we want to do more content for an Indian audience. So I was like, I went to that meeting thinking, she's going to want to buy a suitable girl. Amazing. You know, didn't happen. She's like, and she tried, you know, she's like sent it to her, the the docs team, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't really buy in that category and Netflix, but like, I'll send it around everywhere. And maybe they'll want it. They Netflix rejected that film like four times, um, but I told Bella in that meeting, I said, you know, there's another thing here, like a suitable girl is an independent documentary. It's about essentially the, the, the journeys of these three young women, you know, um, as they sort of grapple with this idea of marriage. But I was like, there's another, I was like, there's another thing that we didn't really explore in the docu series that I saw when I had that first meeting with Seema as her client. Um, I was like, there is a totally different tone of a show here. That's just about her and her clients around the world, and, like, how she juggles, you know, their demands and their parents' demands and, like, her business and all of that, and I had put together, I'd actually, like, had, before we even started making A Suitable Girl, I had, like, shot a little sizzle reel for Indian matchmaking, and I pitched it around, and I had no taker, so I had that, like, at that point, it was, like, eight years old, this, like, thing I cut on iMovie, you know, sizzle reel for um for Indian matchmaking and I showed I played it for her in the room and she was like we're doing it let's do this show and in um, that that was the moment that I sold Indian matchmaking to Netflix um so that happened that was life changing
0: what year was um, this
1: this was 2018 um and yeah so that was when that process started this was like I think late 2017 or early 2018 something like that okay um and then uh in in 2019 um, I had a meeting just a general one of those water bottle tour general meetings with uh, uh, YRF entertainment in LA So it's the sort of LA office of Yash Raj films mm-hmm. and um, they were you know it was just a general whatever so this is this was before Indian matchmaking came out it was before St. Louis Superman came out so the only work I had to show for myself was a suitable girl but you know they they I, I met with them and they were like what do you interested in blah 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 general conversation and I said you know I've always wanted to make a uh, documentary on Yesh Chopra and his career and his impact and legacy so they're like we don't really do documentaries but tell us more so I put together this whole pitch you know of this idea for the romantics what ended up being the romantics um, and I pitched it to them um and they were really excited about it and they said okay they're like what do you need i said i need access to the vault i need all of your films all of the music all of the behind the scenes archives and i need to talk to everyone in the family um and they said okay and that's how the romantic started so those were those two things you know uh, those are I think... big deals yeah <laughs> yeah so um those things came directly out of a suitable girl
0: wow um we were we have two things going on here now okay so with um with YRF right did you did you have final say or did they did they have final say if they didn't like something or if they wanted certain tones or one questions not to be asked did they have like a final say
1: not at all um they were very hands off on the process um deliberately so one it was because you know as a filmmaker that was a condition for me um but also like Aditya Chopra um as a producer and as a filmmaker, you know, especially in a project like this, you know, it was really important to him that it not be like, that they scandalous. keep a distance.
0: Scandalous? Okay. No,
1: no, not scandalous at oh, all. keep a distance. All,
0: but, like ethically, yeah. like as in an, in an ethical manner to like let you do your thing and explore exactly. it. Exactly. Okay.
1: Exactly. Okay. So there was the only condition, the only condition that, in when I started this process was that they said, you can't, they, you know, there were like a, you could talk to Aditya. T- he'll talk to you off the record. You know, give you background context, whatever. But he's not going to do an interview. So just, you know, if you're going to do this, like, do it with that in mind. Like, plan it that way. And then um, I b- basically convinced him to at least let me film an interview with him for his archives. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, you know, I know you don't want to be in the docu series, but I'm like, I'm here with my crew. We're interviewing all these people. Like, let me at least interview you on camera, and then like, you keep the. Hard drive, like, and lock it in a vault somewhere. You know, if wow. you want. This was
0: a trick for. Uh, this is like a trick you were trying to. Uh, okay, I got you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so then he agreed to that. Uh, so didn't sign a release or anything. So, I, and then I just started editing that interview into the series. So that was the only thing that like that I needed his approval. You know, um, because I didn't. You know, I kind of like did this bait and switch thing with the interview. Um, so then we had you know spent many months, like, almost a year editing at that point and I just like told my editors like just let's just start cutting him into the series and then let's just show him you know so we did that and then when I showed it to him then he finally he was like oh okay he's like I see how you know I kind of see it now you know so thankfully he let us use it but that was the only that was the only thing and but even when I interviewed him there was no like you could talk about this you can't talk about this there was there were no conditions whatsoever for anyone in the family or anyone that I talked to
0: Wow. So you're you're you grew up watching Bollywood movies um, with your dad and mm-hmm. um, now you're in the heart of it. Like you're in it with all the actors and actresses that you saw growing up and you're in their homes in the office. Uh, A, what was that like? And B, did you notice or or see things that were like unexpected? How that industry was or how these people were that you grew up, that people have grown up Idolizing and 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 escaping into their worlds when it comes to yeah. song and dance.
1: You know, I think one of the the great things about the Romantics and shooting all those interviews was um, that I got to talk to all of these huge stars and icons. Like not when they were had a film to promote, you know, yes. or some other. You know, I just I got to talk to them just as, uh, you know, historians in a in a sense to talk to them about the sort of the breadth of their careers, but also like as fans, yeah, you know, and I got to talk to them about their formative experiences going to the movies and, you know, the stars that they grew up admiring and the filmmakers that they grew up admiring. And so it was just a different vibe, you know, it just was a different vibe of an interview. And I think, you know, it was, it it just was really, really fun. And I think, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how, who was paying attention to like what like you know because these guys do like dozens of interviews a week you know so i'm sure they're you know they're like i don't know sit talk answer the questions move on kind of thing yeah, so i don't know how yeah. much anyone was paying attention to what the um purpose like or what my vision was for the series they knew they were doing an interview to talk about yes chopra you know um and for for a project that had the blessing of the studio so everyone like said yes to doing the interview but I think they were like oh we'll sit and like say a few nice words about yes Chopra you know and that'll be that but then like I was be asking them questions about their formative experience the first time they remember going to the movies or you know how like you know 1991 like liberalization impacted them and their careers yeah, and yeah. like you know all you of these deep. like Yeah, went deep. So I think I think, you know, like, I think I would like to think that most of them, like, enjoyed that process, you know, and clearly, for me, it was great, because they had a lot to share, you know, Um, a lot of incredible insights to share. Um, So yeah, it was it was really a thrill. It was a great experience doing those interviews. And I hope it was as good an experience for the people I interviewed as it was for me.
0: Uh, one of the coolest part of the documentaries was with H Chopra opening up and being really honest about his own yeah. uh, failures in his careers. Did you know that he was going to be so open and, and uh, honest or was that like a surprise?
1: I was definitely surprised by the extent to which he opened up and was so vulnerable. Um, that's a scary thing to do. You it know, it's really scary to do. I don't know if I could do it, but, um, but, you know, I, 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 by the time we did that interview, I had, had many conversations with a you know, um, because he was, you know, giving me all of the background context and everything, you know, the stuff that, that, that is not academic, that's more personal about the family. So we had, you know, become, you know, good friends at that point, And we were talking regularly and I, I just knew him to be a very straightforward, very unassuming, you know, uh, almost disarmingly honest person. Um, and so, and I felt, I felt like by the time we interviewed, we interviewed him, I interviewed him that I had built enough of a trust, you know, that he, that I could just ask him, you know, some pretty personal questions. Yeah. Um, And so we just went there and honestly, I was like really, really amazed at how, how deep he went and how open he was. Um, You know? Yeah. I I really appreciated it.
0: One of the topics that you discuss in in the documentary is nepotism. And I wanted to know what were your thoughts?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I will acknowledge, you know, despite my sort of 20 years of hustling in this business. Um, I too, I'm a Nepo baby. You know, I have, my dad was I mean, a filmmaker. I guess, <laughs>
0: but like he didn't get you the job and. Um...
1: No, but, but I think that that goes at the heart of like understanding, you know, that debate a little bit. Right. It's like, you know, I, I, uh, my, my dad, you know, was, you know, he, he, he passed away before like the one m- before my career took off. Um, and, you know, he also was really like hustling. He was a pioneer in the industry, but he never achieved like the massive, massive, like mainstream success, you know, that a Yes Chopra did or other filmmakers did. Um, but um, I had huge advantages, you know, because I grew up around movies and I grew up on film sets and I had a mentor you know since birth you know who told me so much taught me so much about the business and you know um uh and also like I benefit from his legacy to this day you know like my dad was a very generous person you know with his time um and you know he mentored um a lot of young people you know who were uh, of my generation and a little older than me who were starting off in the business and who didn't have a lot of you know brown people to look up to in the business so they would all come and like come to our house and you know um for chai or meet my dad for coffee and he would take you know these like young people out for lunch and one of those people was Bela Bajaria you know he really like he gave her a lot of advice and mentored her early in her career so like I've reaped the benefits of that you know and right. and one of the people he befriended was Yash Chopra, you know, when Yash Chopra came to LA, you know, he met with my dad, my dad helped him out, you know, so I'm sure somewhere, you know, in that equation, you know, that's why I was able to earn the trust of the Chopra family, you know, to tell the story. So like, these things are all connected. Um, But I say that to say that, you know, um, uh, this idea of nepotism or people having advantages you know, over others is everywhere. It's like, it's been there since the dawn of time. It exists in every industry all over the world. It's nothing new and it's nothing that's going anywhere. You know, um, uh, I think, I think that this, it just becomes a flashpoint um, or a lightning rod, I should say, in 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 entertainment because entertainment is, feels like such an impenetrable bubble, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's glamorous and, you know, it comes with a lot of privileges, you know, and a lot of, uh, you know, money and access and, you know, things like that. So I think when you see people who have such clear advantages, be able to compound those advantages, you know, and build careers, Um, and you see others, you know, who are never, you know, given really a chance, that's incredibly frustrating. And so I understand, um, I understand where the, the sort of, um, backlash, you know, against that comes from. And I honestly do think that it, it's very visible in entertainment businesses and not just in, you know, the Hindi film industry or, you know, uh, in India, but in Hollywood too, you know, like it's everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, uh so it's very visible but it's also like kind of egregious a lot of the times you know um it's not just like a okay you know I have some advantages because my family has advantages it's that you know I'm going to exalt you or I'm going to give you a chance because of your family name you know um and I'm going to prioritize you because of your family name I 100% think that 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 happens now I think that um practically speaking, the best thing we can do is to have an awareness about it. Um, And those of us, you know, who have had advantages, be aware of it, be self-aware, and then then leverage those advantages to widen the circle, you know, for others. Um, And I think, like, you know, to a large extent, you know, Yash Films has done that, you know, they've been very uh, deliberate about Seeking out, you know, and launching newcomers, you know, people who without a lot of, you know, without with no background in the industry, no, you know, uh, connections and whatnot, um, and they're doing that more. They were very much on the forefront of this whole idea of like the casting office in India, which is proliferated, you know, um, tremendously in the last, like I would even say, like five to six years. Um, you know, so we're edging slowly at, you know, like inching towards a meritocracy, but we're very far from it. And I think you know. I think with Aditya and his comments about nepotism, what I appreciate about them is that his self awareness of the advantages that he's had, mm-hmm. and his his efforts to um, look beyond just his own um, social circle, his own you know um, connections, you know, to find new people to bring into the industry and to open up the industry for others. But where, what I think you know, maybe is a blind spot or, or a thing that he didn't adequately comment on is the fact that, that, yes, it's true that an audience is the one that ultimately decides, but it's insiders who decide who gets opportunity after opportunity, you know? Um, so while a person without inside connections may have, if they're lucky, one shot, you know? If you like your first film, you're launched and it flops, you're out and it's over. Um, an insider might get chance after chance, you know? Um, uh, so, you know, I think, I think that's a part, that's an aspect of it that, that can't be denied or ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, look, I think ne- nepotism or this idea of nepotism or privilege or whatever it is, is not, it's not going to disappear because people are shouting about it on Twitter. You know, it's, I think it's the better route to me is more self-awareness and a recognition that, um, we are leaving a lot of money and a lot of talent on the table if if we keep opportunities closed you know to a select few so you know that's sort of what I strive toward to and work towards and I think you know Aditya in his way like has been trying to do that um, um, you know and I think there's also a responsibility like I feel a responsibility every day to live up to the legacy of my father and I don't just mean about you know exceeding what he did in his career I mean about matching his level of generosity you know that he had to other people you know so like I feel very compelled to like give of my time you know now that I've achieved something in my career and I have more advantages and more access I feel very compelled to like you know make sure that I'm available you know to to those who are newly coming into the industry emerging in the industry or don't experience that much support in the industry so I think that's also a responsibility that if you have advantages you have to pay forward
0: Wow, uh, that's a good answer. Uh, <laughs> let's let's move on to Indian matchmaking. Okay. Now you're kind of in the limelight and you're kind of on the map now, and the South Asian community it, it, it can be a rough audience and and they can be they can be pretty mm-hmm. critical of things and and they like to really put people down. After uh, Indian matchmaking, Indian matchmaking was like the first of its kind, and you really you really went mainstream with that. Mm-hmm. Did you feel? Any criticism from the South Asian community?
1: Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Um, Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. Of course. Look, I think social media can be distorting. Um, I think the numbers show that, by and large, the series was watched and appreciated. You know, Um, and, and even anecdotally, you know, like, I think a lot of people really valued, you know, seeing their families and their experiences and their unique cultural perspective mainstreamed, you know. Um, but I think a very loud uh, sector, you know, um, of people, particularly on social media and in critic- critical circles, you know, um, had a lot of critique about the show. And honestly, it I... I wouldn't have I wouldn't want it any other way you know mm-hmm. um I don't take it personally you know um it doesn't I actually, bother you. not at all actually i I love it in fact like because I really think you know I think the critique of the show is a is a mix of critique of the show and 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 of critique of our cultural traditions that we think should change and evolve um that that are reflected in the show you know mm-hmm. And the the one criticism I really haven't gotten from anybody is that the show is inaccurate. So I I, I think a lot of the critique of the show is a little bit of like, and a lot of, you know, when people say, Oh, the show is cringy. I think maybe, you know, a lot of what people are cringing at is some of our thought processes and internalized stuff and, you know, cultural traditions that we maybe need to take another look at and perhaps evolve away from. Um, But I think like if, Indian matchmaking as a show could spark that conversation if it could be a conduit for that converse, those uncomfortable conversations that we sometimes don't have with our families when it's personal because it's too triggering or because it's too you know difficult then um, then I think that's an amazing thing you know um, that's how we shift culture actually. We don't shift culture just by a show becoming a hit we shift culture because of the conversations that show sparks. Um, and the changes it impacts, you know, within our own communities, within our, our own households, even. Um, and, you know, and so I was, in fact, not only appreciative of the critique, but I tried as much as I could to engage with the critique. Um, because, you know, me engaging with it would amplify it. And maybe we all learned something, you know, including me. Like, there were very thoughtful pieces that were written by, for example, um Dalit activists and scholars, you know, and Muslim folks, you know, who talked about some of the things that they felt were very harmful, you know, in a show like Indian matchmaking. And I thought those were really valid points. And I thought they were they're things that if you're going to enjoy the show and watch the show, you know, take it a step further and learn a little bit more, you know, rather than just learning about, you know, our colorful weddings and, you know, the quirkiness of our matchmaking traditions, like learn a little bit more about the sexism and the colorism and the casteism, you know, that's baked into these, traditions you know, and so you know I was I tried to stay very engaged you know obviously with the the thoughtful critique, not the bad faith arguments or the trolling but like when if there was thoughtful critique, I really tried to stay engaged with it I did an incredible panel it was very difficult I'll not lie it was very difficult for me it was i was it was very difficult for me but uh, I thought it was really amazing experience um I did a panel with uh with the Dalit uh women's solidarity network I think it's called um around the show when it first came out Um, and I learned a lot, you know, I learned a lot of my, about my own blind spots. And I learned a lot about the responsibility of being a creator. um, And also, you know, felt like those are conversations that should also stem from the work that I create, just like nepotism is a valid conversation, you know, to stem from the romantics. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess to answer your question, I really embrace it. And I think that's how we evolve as a culture, and that's how you know, like we just learn more about ourselves is not just by celebrating the things that we want to see, but by dealing with the uncomfortable truths, you know that these that these big mainstream pieces of content bring out.
0: It's the show. It, the show is a really big success, and it's and it's um, now you have a Jewish matchmaking in the process, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming you're going to have a bunch of other matchmakings, <laughs> uh, different cultures, different people. It, it must be a bit nerving to because now you have a lot more blind spots to work and there's potential blind spots in all these cultures and it's a lot more sensitive and, and it must be overwhelming a bit
1: yeah it is it is very overwhelming um but you know i i know how i approach my work you know i try to be as thoughtful as i can i try to be as collaborative as i can and especially when i'm stepping outside of you know something that is directly connected to my lived experience. I try to involve people, you know, at, at the highest levels, um, who do have, uh, more of a, um, a cultural competence competency. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I also acknowledge that I'm going to make mistakes, you know, um, and I'm going to do things wrong sometimes. And, um, I think that's just part of, that's part of the journey, you know, like if I'm going to accept the praise and the awards and the, all the benefits, you know, of, um, of this work, um, and all the glory of this work, I have to also accept the critique and I have to also accept the hard truths, you know, that it's going to bring up about, about me, you know? Um, and so, you know, I just, I try to remember that, you know, with everything that I do and I try not to, um, take critique personally and try to instead, you know, learn from it and grow from it um, and compartmentalize it to an extent. So, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, I think, you know, for sure, you know, I'm going to make stuff that's going to flop and people are going to think is terrible. I'm going to make stuff that's going to, you know, people are, it's going to make people angry, you know um, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. Um, but I'm going to do the best I can.
0: Indian matchmaking probably got you a big check then bigger check than uh, suitable gold. <laughs> yeah Uh, so now now you're recognized i guess oh i mean uh, i don't think we have time but you were also nominated for an oscar but you've got the you've got the the respect and you've got the mainstream and and you've established up really well now anything is possible are you ever going to consider doing a scripted film
1: yeah definitely um i've had the opportunity to start start on that road um uh, Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher gave me an incredible opportunity to direct um, uh, no scripted way. television for the first time. Yeah, I directed two episodes of Never Have in I Ever in yeah, season yeah. three. Um, that was my first time, you know, as a director, you know, directing fiction. Um, uh, and, the, and you know Mindy and Lang took a chance on me, and the entire cast of that show were so welcoming, you know, and supportive, you know, of me taking that leap um i'm uh i am doing more of that you know um on other shows now um and then i have a production company called moralta films M- moralta films is named after my parents theater which was the moralta theater um full circle Yeah. full circle and um uh my my producing partner Nina Ajla and i we um we are developing a number of scripted projects at our company um series features you know um uh you know, some that I'll write and direct, uh, many that I won't, you know, that I'll just be involved as a producer. Um, But yeah, you know, uh, fiction is definitely like on the horizon for us and and fast approaching. Was
0: it rough to do a scripted episode? Since you're so used (laughs) to this kind of documentary and you're kind of used to this kind of rough, you know, guerrilla warfare type documentary filmmaking was was doing this very different. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, am surprised I didn't like develop an ulcer working on that project and not because it was difficult. It was, I put so much pressure on myself. I just, it was a big deal for me, you know, to be able to do that. And I, you know, it's, for me, it's really, really important to, to like always deliver, like, especially when someone's taking a chance on me to like, to not disappoint and to always deliver. So I, I, went insane prepping for that opportunity. Like I watched every episode, you know, I, 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 my episodes were in the third season. So I had two seasons of that show. I literally studied every frame of those two, first two seasons, you know, like I, I watched it repeatedly the full, you know, series. Then I watched it on silent, you know, on mute just to like study the, the shots and like the performances and everything. Um, I like talked to the actors beforehand, you know, I, I, you know, talked to a bunch of, you know, other television directors who had a lot of experience about, you know, how to approach things, you know, I, 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 I went, you know, a, a little insane prepping for that opportunity, because I just wanted to be really prepared, you know, um, uh, and because a TV shooting schedule is really tight and really intense. Mm-hmm. Um So I just, I'm like, I need to know every single prop that every, you know, in every single scene, I need to know every, like the history of every single character, you know, like I, I I studied, like it was, you know, like I was doing, like studying for MCATs or something for that opportunity. Um, But, um, but when I got on set, um, it was, was, I think it was a combination of like um, how much I, I prepared and how rigorous actually documentary filmmaking is um, that I, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how rigorous it is. Cause you're, you're sort of, when you're making documentaries, especially like Verite documentaries, like the kind I make, you're, you're directing on your feet every day. Like you're, you know, you're that muscle gets really, really strong because every day I'm like in real life without any script, you know, I'm watching things unfold on camera and I'm editing them in my head And I'm thinking about what else I need to get to tell the story, processing what it means, you know? So when I got on set and because I had prepared so much, um, it just was like second nature to me, you know, it was like, and I I think like I could, because I'd been doing this for years, I could look at the two monitors, you know, on set. And if we were running short of time, I knew exactly like, okay, I can cut these shots. I can combine these shots, you know, to get what I need or, you know, I, I, I could, you know, I, I I can maybe help this actor, like, you know, dig it a little deeper into their performance because, you know, I don't know. It just like it really prepared me, you know. And it's like documentary filmmaking is very collaborative by nature, and so is uh, television directing, you know. So I kind of it just it was like a fish to water, you know. I really it, I really enjoyed the experience, and I felt very confident, you know. And I think this is also because like the cast was so like they made me feel, and the crew like they made me feel so confident, but i felt really confident doing it now let's see i'm about to do it again for the second time so um hopefully or i don't fall show? flat on my face no different show um, okay i can't share i don't think i'm supposed to share but um you'll it'll be evident soon
0: do you have any advice for uh, young people who are trying to get into the film industry or or want to do something badass yeah. like what you did <laughs> well,
1: yeah, one one piece of advice would be that don't forget, like, don't just look at sort of the end result of my career or like the current state of my career and aspire to that. Like, remember that I grinded out for 20 years before I got my before I before I had my very first breakthrough, you know, um, in my career. Um, it took a long time, a long time. Um, and uh, so don't give up. Mm -hmm. Um, and remember that it's a lot of grinding. Like, I know we kind of, you know, have this tendency to look at the end results of things, you know, and and point at that and say, that's what I want. And that's what I deserve. But, um, we don't hear about the failures. We don't hear about all the hard work that goes into it, all of the risks that are taken. Um, so just, I, you know, the advice that, that was given to me and that I always tried to follow is that, you know, humble yourself, do the hard work and remember that like, you know, my anecdote about how, like, I really felt like I learned how to be a director because I was my own assistant editor on my first film. Um, and I was doing grunt work, you know, like that probably like a someone out of college should have been doing, um, but that's how I learned. And I think like, don't be afraid, you know, like the way you, the building blocks to becoming great at what you do are in the grunt work. It's in the totally unglamorous, the totally mundane, boring shit you know that you have to do day in and day out like I learned how to be a producer because I had to file every single piece of paper in that office and as I was filing I would read every contract and every script you know and I would come in on the weekends and like you know this was before IMDB there was this thing called studio system and I would come in on the weekends and like sit in that office and like just go through studio system and try to learn all the names and all the connections like that's the hustle you know and then eventually those little 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 things like add up, you know, to like great breakthroughs, not only in terms of opportunities, but also, you know, in terms of your preparedness, you know, your readiness for the opportunities that come and really being able to seize on them. So uh, don't be afraid of the grunt work, I would say.
0: Awesome. Uh, that's the time. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this was such a great conversation. And I can't wait to see your new works coming out.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. This is great. And honestly, thank you so much for everything that you do. It's it's like Please, such no, an amazing don't, contribution. Don't. No, no, no. I got to say it. I got to say it. It's like, and don't cut this out either. Like what you do is an incredible contribution, you know, um, that, you know, every, every time, you know, when I see a new post on Brown history, like I feel inspired, I feel reconnected, you know, to my roots. I learn something. Um, I feel excited about being Brown. So um, thank you so much, you know, for what you do. It's, it's really thank invaluable. You.
0: You're very kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> awesome Uh, and I buy all your
1: merch too I have more posters than I have walls you have posters I have I buy literally I have I don't have any walls because I don't we're like between offices so I you know I don't have any walls to put all the posters on but one day when I have like a gigantic palatial compound somewhere
0: it's gonna be all brown
1: history posters oh my god wow (laughs) uh
0: that's that's crazy I'm gonna brag about this to everybody I know
1: please do please do I I buy Uh, all of it
0: Uh, awesome thank you so much uh it'll get released uh next week friday probably and uh, if there's anything